0: say a prayer as we look at the scripture this morning okay father son and holy spirit we're grateful that whenever we're gathered together you promise to be with us and so we're happy to be in this space where we can uh, listen to you learn from you uh, think about god ways in which you want to encourage us or challenge us and lord every every week that we gather in this school which we've been doing for 10 years now We want to pray for the students who come in the doors every day, and the teachers, and the administrators, and the leaders, God, that your peace would be on this school, that you'd encourage the teachers, um, that you'd encourage the students, that they can grow into the people that you created them to be. So we continue to ask for your help and show us how we can be of help to the students and the teachers of Sheridan School. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning, everybody. I've been getting these emails lately because I just, uh, in the last couple of years, entered the 40s decade, and a lot of my friends, yeah, thank you, Brian, appreciate that. Uh, a lot of my friends, uh, significant others or f- other friends of theirs, as they're turning 40, seems like a popular thing to do, to send out an email to people and say, could you say something encouraging about this person? And then to collect the uh, collect the sayings or the words and kind of give them all. Has anybody done that? You gotten that email from somebody? Okay, just me. So my friends email me and ask me for these encouraging. But I, I don't know if it's like people moving into their 40s need more affirmation than people in their 30s or their 20s or their 50s or their 60s. I don't know. Um, but it, it, it's every time I've gotten one of those emails, it's been a real gift to sit down for just a minute and think about one of my friends. And say like I wouldn't otherwise do this. I wouldn't sit down and go. These are some great qualities about you. It's Tuesday, you know, happy Tuesday. Um, but because I'm prompted by someone else, I'll sit down and go. Wow, yeah. You you might not think about this every day, but you're amazing at this. Or our friendship means a lot to me. Or you know whatever comes to mind. Um, so as I've as I've gotten these emails and, and thought about this, I always I also thought. Well, I wonder about how people would describe me right and some of my friends have have told me that and that's been really meaningful and maybe this week uh, if you get the chance just randomly sit down and think about one of your friends and think of a few words of encouragement and just shoot them off to him on a text or or whatever that would be that would be a great takeaway from today's sermon but as i've thought about it like well how would people describe you and one step further if people aren't prompted to say the very best things about you and, you, and someone was just introducing you to someone who didn't know you, okay? How would they describe you? What words do you think a close friend of yours who's describing you to a stranger would use? What words would you hope they would use? Um, for, for us, it's maybe a good chance to think about, like, how, how am I existing in the world, and what is the legacy that I'm leaving in terms of how I'm engaging with other people? shift your thinking just a little bit to say, okay, what if we were going to give God a birthday affirmation? That's what I call these things that we're putting together. A birthday affirmation. If we were going to tell God, here are the things that I appreciate about God, what would be the words that you would use? And also, if you were going to try to describe God or describe Jesus to someone who has absolutely no idea what you're talking about when you refer to the God of the Bible or Jesus this guy who lived 2,000 years ago and who was the son of God, what would you use, what words would you use to describe Jesus or or the God of the Bible to someone who has no idea what you're talking about? Think about it for a second. What words come in and pop into your head? Just this last week I was going through um, with a friend some significant challenges about how women are treated in churches. And I was a little bit bothered. I was more than a little bit bothered by it. And As I was sitting down at my kitchen table with my children that night, I decided, I'm going to sit here tonight over dinner and make my kids listen to me, tell them about the ways in which I perceive Jesus to interact with women and how countercultural that was. And normally, you know, they're pastor's kids, so they're used to these little sermons, I think, but they they don't always receive them super well. Uh, But in this particular instance, they were like glued to what I was saying. And I just started telling him stories like, well, Jesus would go out of his way to even enter into foreign territories in order to meet with women that nobody else would talk to and the woman at the well. He would allow women to sit at his feet and receive his teaching, even though that wasn't their rightful place in the cultural and gender identity that they had at that time. Um, he, he had followers and funders who were women who allowed his ministry to keep going and probably would have struggled without their support and without their energy. And I just went on for who knows how long, probably four hours. And by the end of the dinner, like, I seriously, could have heard a pin drop. And it was just an example for me of like, how are we talking about God? How are we talking about Jesus? In this case, to some young people who don't really know all that yet, don't know all the stories the same way that some of us do. Um, what language would you use to describe God? Somebody who's learning about God or interested about God. So today we're starting this series on love for the month of February. The cliche is so thick, somebody had to go, Woo. We wanted to reframe love in February a little bit. Not only allow it to be dominated by normal February love things, but also say, well, what is really God's love like? We sometimes say Jesus loves you or God loves you, but what do we mean when we say that? And what is the response that God brings out of us as we experience God's love? That's what we wanna talk about in the month of February. If you wanna describe the God of the Bible, here's where I wanna start the discussion. If you wanna describe the God of the Bible, if you wanna describe Jesus as the Son of God, you start by describing God's love. You start by describing how loving God is. That's the best place to start in my opinion if you're looking at scripture and the way scripture talks about God. So today I'm gonna to use Psalm 145. If you have a Bible or a phone, uh, I wanna pull that up. It'll be on the screen for you as well. Psalm 145 is a really unique Psalm. Um, it's a poem, it's an acrostic, meaning that every line in the original language begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And one of the reasons why you would write a poem that way was to indicate to the people who are hearing or reading it or listening to it be sung that you are trying to encompass everything that can be said, even though obviously you can't say everything in one short poem. But the the form is meant to indicate from A to Z, right? This is uh, This is everything that we know about who God is or that we love about who God is. So when we ask the question, how do we describe God? If you were living in ancient Near East, when the time when the Old Testament was written sometime around there, this is a psalm you would likely have pointed to. It was a psalm that was read all the time in temple. It was a psalm that was sung all the time, just in regular gatherings, or it was used as a liturgy, like a prayer to begin the day and to end the day. So even if you're looking for a a way to pray this week, and maybe prayer's been hard for you lately, I'd encourage you, just take the psalm and read it as a prayer, maybe in the morning or the evening or both the morning and the evening this week. Because that's how it's designed. That's how it's written. So it's attributed to King David. And David is writing down this psalm, not just to express his own thoughts on the subject, but he's using it as a tool to help all of Israel remember who their God is. And that's how they use the psalm. So as I read part of it, I'm going to read verses 8 through 14. You heard the first seven verses read earlier during our worship time. I'm going to focus on verses 8 to 14, but I really encourage you to go home and read the whole uh, the whole psalm. I'll read it as I'm speaking this morning. So here's here's how God is described in Psalm 145, verse eight. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all; He has compassion on all He has made. All your works, praise you, Lord. All your faithful people extol you they tell the glory of your kingdom and they speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty act and the glorious splendor of your kingdom your your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations the lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does the lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down so we're going to look at just a few parts of this psalm and we're asking the question how would you describe God if you were going to try to describe God to somebody who didn't didn't know who the God of the Bible was and I want to begin with just a little background and say in the ancient Near East which is how we usually refer to this time period in the cultures that existed uh, in the time that's being captured by King David's life and the Israelites at that time conditional love was the norm conditional love was the norm here's what i mean by that it means that the gods the gods that were imagined in every nation and every tribe and every group had their own territorial god you had your people you had your land and you had a god or gods that oversaw that area so there were many gods that people worshipped at the time and almost all of our understanding of ancient near east gods was that all their loving relationship if you would even call that call it that with their people was conditional there were expectations from the god of that territory for the people living in that territory in order to keep the god happy and so worship rituals sacrifices various things that people learned to practice were all aimed at pleasing the god of that area so that they could get safety and provision from the god that they believed in that they were worshiping in that area That was the regular practice of the people of that time. And so this idea that this God, whatever God it was in their area, would love you, would take care of you, would provide for you, always had an if at the end of it. I will care for you if you do what I say. I will care for you if you give me what I want. I will care for you if I feel like it. I will love you if I'm still getting something out of this. I will love you if you never change, but always stay the same. And the list could go on and on and on. And every territory and every tribe and every nation had a different set of understandings of what their particular God expected of them. And it was always conditional. Now, think about the 21st century for a second. Zoom up, zoom zoom to the present tense. Don't you think that most of our understandings of life relationships, work, stuff we're going through, is all still some form of conditional love? Meaning you get paid if you do a really good job. You can stay in certain relationships as long as the relationship serves certain people's needs. Almost all of our experience of life, even if we talk about it, we don't talk about it this way, has to do with if-then statements. Of conditional love and experience and so that's why back then and now I think it's totally radical when you read this description of Yahweh the God of the Israelites the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because God's love is not described with conditions in this passage and you might read that and you might hear like oh God's faithful and good and gracious and all yeah okay but you don't you don't always recognize because we're not putting it in context of what everybody would have expected to hear like god will be faithful to you if god will be gracious to you if god will be loving rich in love towards you if but the if isn't in here and so the communication even well way before jesus came to earth and we had a clearer understanding of what jesus or what god would be like in human form we get phrases like this the lord the lord god is gracious and compassionate. I'm trying to impress upon you this morning that to lead with a description like God is gracious and compassionate would have sounded ridiculous to ancient Near East people. Why would you lead with grace when you can just smote people when they don't do what you want? Why would you lead with compassion when you can just demand that they meet your expectations or else? So you hear this description of God and you don't you've never met the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and they start saying they start singing things like the Lord is gracious and compassionate which which they probably would have heard like God listens to people who are struggling. God listens to people who are weighed down by debts or expectations that they can't meet. God shows mercy and love towards people who need it. Grace and compassion are not things that are thought of as strength in the ancient Near East. And they might not be things that we think of as strength now, right? The Lord is gracious and compassionate. The Lord is slow to anger and rich in love. Slow to anger is particularly ridiculous here, okay? Maybe some of you have have read or studied or come across at some point in your life where like the gods of the ancient world, they're always angry. That It's their job to be angry. They're mad all the time, almost all the time, unless they're being appeased, and they use the word appeased a lot, like keep God happy because God's default is to be angry. So for the second line of this to be, the Lord is slow to anger. God is patient. When we don't necessarily live up to what God hopes for us, how does God respond? With patience, with grace, with compassion, with the hope that we will find a new way to understand ourselves and who God is and live a different way. God is not quick to anger. We don't have to be cowering in the corner because if we do one thing wrong, God's going to be super angry with us. Anybody ever felt like that? Like God was just waiting to be angry with you if you did it wrong? That's not what the text says. The text says God is slow to anger. God is patient with God's people. God wants us to understand who God is and what God wants for our life. And he's waiting on us and patient with us as we try to figure it out. David wants his people to know God is not like the other gods that people talk about. Our God is slow to anger and patient and compassionate and gracious. God is rich in love. The original language here in Hebrew is hesed, which means like loyal love. Loving kindness is another way to say it. Or some scholars call it covenant love, like I'm bonded to you love. They use the word hesed here to help people understand that God is committed to them. And throughout the Old Testament, we get this idea that God has chosen people and committed God's self to them and said, I'm with you. Like, I'm bound to you. I'm married to you. I'm I'm your God no matter what. I will not give up on you. And again, this is totally bizarre in the ancient Near East because the whole idea for a God is to have people to meet the God's needs, to make the God happy. And so for Yahweh to come and say, no, this is who I am. I'm, I am Hesed love, covenant relationship, loyalty is at the core of my love for you. Kind of regardless of what your response is. totally different than what most people would have understood as God's engagement with people. God is committed to loving these folks no matter what. Because that's who God is. Not because he's waiting for them to respond in a particular way. I think that this view of God is a little bit lost in most of the conversations that we're all having on a day-to-day basis. It's really easy in your life, and don't feel bad if this is you. It's really easy in your life to get a different image of God in your head and start living your life as if God is like an angry boss or God is a disappointed dad. Or God is a super distant relative that doesn't talk to you at all and couldn't care less about what's happening to you. God is a a person who doesn't have any power to change your circumstances and doesn't care that much about your circumstances. It's easy out of our experiences of life to get to thinking about God in all these ways. God is like a disgruntled Santa, doesn't want to give you a gift. Think a little bit this week about what, what would be my most common image of God. That's important to keep in your mind as you're pursuing your relationship with Jesus. I think we need to be constantly reminded, which is why they use this psalm over and over again, that God is not like any of those things. God's not quick to be angry with us. God's passionate toward, compassionate towards us. God is rich and loyal and faithful, even if we're not loyal and faithful all the time. I was reading a book this week that's a compilation of Martin Luther King's sermons called "Strength to Love." Uh, it's a great it's a great book. If you have time this month, Coretta Scott King, his wife, wrote the introduction, and she talks in the introduction about how uh, how Martin's belief in a Christian God who was loving was the thing that was the foundation of all of his work. Like The reason he used nonviolence as an approach to protesting during the civil rights movement was because he believed that God was loving and nonviolent. The reason that he talked about uh, people being empowered and people being equal was because he thought God loved everybody that got created equally. And she just kind of pulls out a little bit of how Martin Luther King's understanding of God as loving was the reason he was doing everything else. And it was really, it was really great to kind of get a, a glimpse back behind all the different things that he was doing. Uh, in one of his sermons, he himself says, The importance of taking nonviolent action as we face people who are oppressing us is that it makes our hearts more loving towards our enemies as we're doing it. As we would make an effort to help our enemies soften their hearts towards us at the same time. It makes us more loving towards our enemies while inviting our enemies to love us back. Isn't that amazing? Don't you think that regardless of anybody's spiritual background or perspective, at the moment in the struggles that we're all facing in the world that we live in, it might be good to return to an understanding and a belief of what it's like for God to be inherently loving? That we might respond with love to enemies, love towards ourselves, love towards others who look or think differently than us? I think we desperately need to know that God is rich in love, loyal love, love that doesn't quit on us when we don't behave the way that maybe we're expected. to. The the psalm goes on to say, the Lord is God to all. His compassion is on all of creation, all that he's made. This is also radical because the Israelites would have been very tempted and often made the mistake to think that that God was their God, their territory, their nation, their people, right? And the psalm blows that up too and says, no, no, this is the God of everybody. This God's powers are not limited to our little chunk of land in the Middle East. This God is the creator God. In fact, all these other gods aren't even real. This is the only true God who loves and is compassionate and gracious towards all of everyone, all of creation, all nations, tribes, and tongues. God is not playing favorites with one particular group of people. He's working through those people in order that the whole world would know that this loving God exists. The psalm says the Lord is trustworthy in all he promises, faithful in all he does. The God that we worship doesn't look for opportunities to manipulate us or go back on what God said or look for an out when there seems to be an out. He fulfills everything he says he's going to do as he engages with people, even if we as people aren't faithful to God. And finally, it says, the Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. Again, in the ancient Northeast, if you fall or you bow are bowed down, it means you're weak. It means you're not worthy of respect. It means we should not associate with you as a weak or fallen person because we might become weak or fallen people. And explicitly in this home, when we're describing this God to people who wouldn't know anything about the God, you're trying to say, look, this God cares about the people who are weak, who have fallen down, who are on the edges, who've been rejected for whatever reason. In fact, our God moves towards those people instead of shunning them and rejecting them. This psalm captures how King David wanted God's people to think about God. And so they repeated it and sang it and rehearsed it. It's a description of the character and the actions of the God of Israel. The description shows the radical differences between Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the other gods that people worship. This God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. The God of Israel is good to everyone, trustworthy in all God's actions and promises, faithful in everything that God does. The God of the Bible upholds all those who fall down and lifts up those who are bowed down or weighed down, and this is what makes God great. It was an insane message in 1000 BCE. It's still an insane message, isn't it? Love is essential to understanding God throughout Scripture. It's not as if God just becomes loving when Jesus shows up. God is known as loving all through the story of Scripture. And God's loving kindness or loyal love to us is the cornerstone of David's description to God's people in this psalm. If you want to describe the, the God of the Bible well, you have to start with God's love. We need that reminder right now. Let me say just a couple things about our response to this, okay? Because love is central to who God is, then love, loving response is being called out of us into the world, right? Maybe that seems obvious. The Bible describes our response to God's love to us all in terms of, of us expressing love to other people. So just briefly, and we're going to look at some of these in some of the future sermons. You know, in Deuteronomy 6, uh, the scripture says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's what G- and Jesus quotes it in his own ministry. A proper response to a loving God is to love God back. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says, are the most important commandments. Love one another by, by loving each other, Jesus says to his disciples, people will know that you're my disciples. They will know that you're my disciples because of the way that you love each other. Couldn't the church's reputation be improved if when you went to any local church, the thing that the neighborhood knew about the church was how well those people loved each other? That seems like it could be a good goal for the 21st century. When we talk to people outside of our church, do they know have they heard about how well we love each other and the people in our community? 1 Corinthians 13, which you've heard at the most recent wedding you went to. If you have any kinds of gifts, but you don't have love, the gifts are worthless. Doesn't matter if you know a lot of stuff, if you don't have love. Doesn't matter if you can prophesy the future, if you don't have love. Doesn't Doesn't matter if you have a great teaching gift, if you don't have love. Doesn't matter if you're super generous, if you don't have love. There's faith and there's hope and there's love, but the greatest is still love. And Jesus, maybe more radically than anything, in Matthew 5 says, you're not supposed to hate your enemies. You're supposed to love your enemies and pray for them. We need that one too, don't we? Let me invite the band to come up. I think God is best described at a foundation in the Bible. The God of the Bible is best described by the love that God offers to us. That's how we know who God is. God wants love from us in return. God wants love from us in return and God wants us to love the other people in our lives well. Love is central to who God is, what God does, and what God asks of us. And that's what we're going to explore this month. Let me finish by saying our mission statement for our church Uh, especially if you're new, you might not have heard it yet. We're here to love our community in the name of Jesus. And when we wrote that mission statement 10 plus years ago, we were thinking, how can we both articulate the desire to be known as a loving church family, a loving church community, people who know how to love each other well, uh, in the name of Jesus, particularly in the way that Jesus, self-sacrificing way of Jesus love. How can we do that? And also, how can we define community in a way that includes the neighborhoods and workplaces and friendships and family life that we all experience all the time. So it isn't just this club of interested Christians who hang out together and take care of each other, but instead that love comes out of that community and into the lives of the people that we interact with every day. What if we could create a church that was known for loving all the communities that they're involved with in the name of Jesus? What would that be like? And now, 10 years later, we've learned that, one, people are looking for a community where they can find that kind of love and relationship with each other, but we're not satisfied with just learning to love other Christians. We want to love other Christians so that the rest of the world will know how great this God of love is and could be in their life. And we can tell stories now, 10 years later, of how God has used Mill City Church in the local community to say, I didn't know Christians could act like that. I didn't know Christians could be interested in the things that were going on in the local school or in the life of the community that they are in. I had a young man who was visiting a couple Sundays ago and he said, "Uh, I've been just waiting to be part of a church. I've wanted to be part of a church where, yeah, we know each other, but we know that's just not enough. We love each other, but that's not where it ends. Our love flows through us to other people in ways that make tangible difference in the lives of others. Not so that we get to be great, but because people have a shot at actually believing there's a God in the universe who loves them the way that this psalm described. That's our calling as a church. I'm going to invite you to come up to take communion. And if you've not been here before, here's how we practice communion. The communion service can come up and get ready too. Uh, We have gluten-free bread, crackers actually. And you take a gluten-free cracker and you dip it in the juice. And the cracker represents Jesus' body and the juice represents Jesus' blood. And you don't have to be a member of Mill City Church to participate in communion. You just have to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Someone who's trying to receive the love and grace and forgiveness that offers, God offers us in Jesus and follow that. And even as you come forward, I want you to imagine that this little journey from your seat to the communion table is a way of opening yourself up and saying to God, I need to receive your love first. I need to receive on a regular basis your forgiveness and remind myself of what the God who's rich in love is like. And then as you receive the elements and you're going back to your seat, past some people who would love to pray for you if you wanna stop and pray with them, you're now journeying out into the world that you live in, the communities that you're part of, and you're sent by God into those communities as an agent of God's love to love those communities in the name of Jesus. And we believe that you're just as much Mill City Church when you're acting in those communities as when you're gathered here in this school. And through all of us, not just through the official programs or efforts of Mill City Church, but through your daily life, God's love is seeping into the world and people can discover who the real God is. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. It's hard for us to even be able to wrap our minds around how much you love us. And so today, as we're taking communion, I will pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, supernaturally help each of us to recognize what it means for you to call us your kid, your son, your daughter. That no matter what we've gone through in our lives, God, no matter what we're bringing to this communion table today, you are a God who's rich in love. You are committed to us even more than we're committed to you. Your grace and your mercy and your compassion is on us, God, even when we don't realize it. As we come forward today, God, may it not just be a walk to the front of some school auditorium. May it be a spiritual practice where we are revived and renewed because we receive this unconditional love that you offer to us. And we walk back into the world that we know that you love, trying to help other people see the love that you have for them. God, build the reputation of your church, not just Mill City Church, but all the churches, that we would be known, as you said, as disciples of yours because of the way that we love. Help us to grow in compassion and mercy as we listen to you and receive from you and become more like. Make your name great, God, by the way that your church is acting in the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.